Welcome to First Pitches, where famous founders break down the very first version of their pitch so you can master yours. I'm Lolita Taub, co-founder and general partner at the Community Fund. And I'm Eric Bond, co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund. Lolita, ready for some real talk with these founders? Sure, let's do it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 21,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash first pitches. Frank Rimmerman is a public accounting firm whose history is closely intertwined with that of Silicon Valley. With humble beginnings similar to so many startups, Frank Rimmerman was formed with a desire to serve the entrepreneurial and venture communities of the Valley, supporting those who think outside the box. This is what the Frank Rimmerman team told us at first pitches. Even we agree accounting work can be boring. That's why we chose to work with some of the most innovative and creative people, people who are changing the world around us every day. Their excitement fuels our passion and determination to grow and serve this special community. Frank Rimmerman is the entrepreneurial CPA firm. Check them out at frankrimmerman.com slash startup services. In today's First Pitches episode, we are excited to speak to Cindy Gallup, founder of Make Love Not Porn, and self-proclaimed Michael Bay of business because she likes to blow shit up. You may know of Cindy from her popular 2009 TED Talk, where she famously said, actually, no, thank you very much. I would much rather you didn't come on my face. Yep, that's real. In addition, she is a sought-after speaker on marketing, business innovation, and gender issues, and was also voted Advertising Woman of the Year in 2003. But over 10 years ago, it was a different story. As accomplished as Cindy was, she could not get a single investor to invest into Make Love, Not Porn. Not because they didn't believe in Cindy or the business, but because they were worried what others may think. At one point, she almost gave up, but the flood of public emails thanking her for her breaking taboos inspired her to carry on. And in 2018, she was able to raise $2 million to continue Make Love Not Porn's mission of disrupting the porn industry and improving our sex lives for the better. Cindy, it's an honor to have you here to share your story today, and we are so excited to hear your first pitch. I'm thrilled to be here. I want to go back to the quote that's on your website, because frankly, it is one of the most pithy, wonderful descriptions I've heard in a bio, which is, quote, I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. So... I have a favorite Michael Bay film from 1996 called The Rock. Is there a favorite Michael Bay film that you have, or do they just all blur together at this point? Well, do you know, Eric, to be perfectly frank, I am not a Michael Bay fan. And I'm especially not a Michael Bay fan since a number of stories have emerged about his behavior on set and 
things that went on um, mm-hmm. when we were shooting movies. How that came about was many years ago, I was in a meeting with a potential consultancy client, which is how I support myself on the side, you know, business consulting. And I was explaining my approach to consultancy. And I said, I only work for clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. Mm-hmm. You come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And so I went as a throwaway line, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. And everybody in the meeting laughed. And I came out of the meeting and I thought, actually, that is a pretty good summation of what I do. I'm going to use that. <laughs> and, so, and so that was how that began. But, but actually, I use that line not as a bit of fun or a bit of whimsy or a bit of creativity. I do it very mm. deliberately because I'm a great believer in be your own filter. When I characterize what I do in that way, it attracts to me the people who want what I do. It repels the ones who don't. And I sure as hell want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort and money. And so it actually serves a business purpose by ensuring that I only get to talk to the people who really want to have shit blown up. This is incredible. So I love this insight about creating your own filter through this even very simple uh, sentence description about yourself. Given actually the current state of the world, we're post Me Too, we're entering this period of cancel culture as well, and also the stories that we've heard about Michael Bay as well. Is Have you ever thought about permutating the analogy just for the, the current times? No, because it works. I mean, it's a light-hearted joke. It regularly crops up in people's posts about the top three buyers on LinkedIn. Uh, I've appeared in a number of those. And it's absolutely embedded itself in people's minds as emblematic of what I do. And as I said, that's very useful to me in a business context. So no, I'm not changing it. So I'd like to ask you, we did some research on you, obviously, and, and we love your history, but it seems almost like you went from your corporate career, you wanted to do something new, and then you went and did it, which is amazing. But I'm really curious, what was that moment, Cindy, where you said, enough of this, I'm going to go do me and do what I want and put out into the world what I want to see. Was there a specific moment that occurred that drove you to make love, not porn? Well, no, there wasn't, Lolita, because everything in my life and career has happened by accident. I have never consciously intentionally planned anything. You know, make love, not porn was a total accident. Leaving the corporate world was also somewhat accidental because the way that happened was I turned 45 back in 2005 And I had my very own personal midlife crisis in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. You know, in a couple of years running up to it, I'd gone on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review, where have I been, where am I going? So on February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. You know, wonderful agency, Bartle, Bogle, Hegarty, BBH, cannot say enough nice things about them. But I went, wow, I think it might be time to do something different. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, okay, guys, here I am, what do you got? 
and see what comes. And so I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned as a chairman of BBH New York in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. And honestly, it was the best thing mm. that I ever did in my life because I am now evangelical about working for yourself. But that was not a conscious decision to begin with. It was just the process of going, here I am, and now this seems like it makes sense as the next thing to do. I mean, philosophically, Cindy, do you take a fatalistic view of life, just that there's like a plan for you or something? I mean, it takes an enormous courage to just say, like, I'm going to put myself out there without a plan, see where the winds take me. That sounds scary as hell. And I'm curious about... Is there some like a greater, like larger philosophical driver behind your life underlying it all? Well, do you know, Eric, the, the funny thing is that I have my own personal philosophies and my philosophy of what is not risky and safe is very different, I think, to most people. So most people make the mistake of thinking that a job is the safe option. It's not. Because in a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I always say to people, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of a large corporate entity who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. And so I actually think it's a lot safer and a lot less risky to be completely in control of your own destiny. Hmm. I completely agree with that. I was actually telling Eric, I think it was yesterday, we were on the phone and we were talking about how when I I quit corporate as well, Cindy, and I didn't have a next job as well. So when, when I learned about this part of your story, it very much resonated with me because what happened to me is my boss said, he said, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. You're throwing away the perfect job that everybody wants. And for what? You don't even know what you're going to go do. Who are you to do that? And well, I, I think I've done pretty well for myself. And, you, ha- and, and, <laughs> and you have too, Cindy. So, I mean, I think there's so much to be said about what you just said. So you get into, we're going to go and do a TED Talk, right? And you have this super powerful, I mean, it's just every word is a tweetable, honestly. How does that happen? And And that, you know, swings you into action for an entire, over a decade now, and working in Make Love Not Porn. So my TED Talk was also a complete and total accident. Wow. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, I mean, first of all, just to explain how Make Love Not Porn came about, because I was building it when I I applied to do the TED Talk. So I date younger men. They tend to be men in their 20s. And this was, you know, 12 or 13 years ago. I began realizing through dating younger men that I was encountering an issue that would honestly never have crossed my mind if I had not encountered it so very intimately and personally. I realized I was experiencing what happens when two things converge. And I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one thing. Hmm. I realized I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. It's when those two factors converge, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, whoa, I know where that behavior is coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that. 
because 12, 13 years ago, nobody was talking about this. Mm -hmm. No one was writing about it. This was me in isolation as a naturally action-oriented person going, I'm going to do something about this. So 11 years ago, you know, I decided just as a little side venture to put up on no money a clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original iteration was just words. You know, the construct was porn world versus real world. Here's what happens in the porn world. Here's what happens in the real world. So I was in the process of building this when Chris Anderson, the curator of TED, put the call out. This was in the fall of 2008. TED historically has basically invited its audiences to submit applications for short talks on the main stage that are what Chris calls palate cleansers in between the scheduled talks. And so, you know, I get the, the call out from TED going, submit your talks. I'm working on making up not porn. I submitted it half as a joke. Okay, I thought, mm. I'd love to see Chris Anderson's face when he sees this. Uh, you know. And much to my surprise, pleasant surprise, Chris took it very seriously. He got straight back to me. He said, wow, Cindy, I mean, this is obviously a serious issue. I want you to give this talk. We just have to talk about exactly what you're going to be talking about first. Because this is before the original Make Love Not Porn.com had launched. He had no idea what I was going to put on it. And so we had a chat on the phone where I explained, I mean, it was going to be totally safe for work. It was just going to be words and designs. And so he, he gave me a great slot for my talk on the first opening day of TED in session two, you know, after Bill Gates had talked in session one. Wow. Wow. And unfortunately, Bill didn't stay for my talk. I wish he had, because I would loved him to have, to have seen it. And this also is an indication of how long ago this was. You know, in 2009, as far as I was concerned, first of all, I was only talking to the people in the room. You know, I didn't think for a moment that this talk would live on video, go viral. And the second thing that tells you how long ago this was, was that Ted did not rehearse me in it beforehand. So Ted had no idea what I was going to say. Incredible. And by the way, that never happens these days. <laughs> and so, you know, I gave this talk. And again, because... TED.com and the whole video scenario was not a thing. I mean, it was very unnerving, but it wasn't nearly as unnerving as TED speakers feel today about speaking at TED, because, because again, TED hadn't gotten to that, you know, That's level right. of critical mass. And so I gave this talk to the people in the room. And I mean, you could have heard a pin drop, as you could get, as you could hear on the soundtrack, you know. And afterwards, I just got the most amazing response for the rest of that week at TED, including in the coffee break immediately following that talk, Robin Williams was in the audience, may he rest in peace, and he came up to me, we're all outside, this was when TED was at Long Beach, we're all outside the theatre, you know, for the coffee break, and Robin Williams came up, and he proceeded to just go into this utterly hysterical, improvised comic riff about everything that I just talked about. Wow. And I wish to God I had a video of it because a little crowd gathered around us. And one of the people in it did video some of it and he put it up on YouTube and then he took it down later. I think that might have been not okay. But Robin Williams just, we had this hysterical conversation about Make Love Not Porn, which was, which was wonderful. And for the rest of the week, everybody at TED came up to me and said, that was amazing. I mean, they actually said it made them realize how much TED, which is all about ideas worth spreading, never talked about sex. That was the first time anyone had 
you know, talked about on the TED stage. And young and old, parents come up and said, oh my God, I'm going to talk to my children. You know, I, I made a number of friends precisely because of that. The wonderful Katie Stanton, you know, mm-hmm. I met her at TED through my talk that year, Margaret Stewart, the head designer at Facebook, you know, they're both they're really good friends. And, and that was how I met them at TED that year through, through my talk. That's such a great story. Lolita, I don't know about you, but I got to hear this pitch. Yeah, that, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I mean, you got us all ready. We <laughs> watched the TED talk and now let's hear your first pitch. So Cindy, we got a copy of your pitch deck from 2011. This is about two years after your lightning bolt of a TED talk. And we are your investors. We would love to hear how you are pitching Make Love Not Porn to us. Sure. And by the way, in 2011, I'd already spent two years fruitlessly pitching. So so what you have is the final iteration of the original Make Love Not Porn pitch deck from the end of that two-year period, which was just before I finally found an investor. Exciting. And so I should explain. So the title slide says, the future of porn in a good way. And I realized relatively quickly, as I went out to pitch Make Love Not Porn, that in a way, I was going to continue operating my be your own filter philosophy, because (laughs) with this startup, you are either in or out. Okay, so basically, if this was not for you, it totally wasn't for you. This was not a conventional pitch where you had a startup that you might be able to persuade investors to kind of look on favorably. I always say that this process proved to me the truth of the saying, which is, we do not see things as they are, we see things as we are. And that is true about sex more than anything else. Because how people respond to what I'm doing with Make Love Not Porn is entirely based on their own sexual journey and their experiences. And so with a title side that goes the future of porn in a good way, either you're prepared to listen to me or you're not. And if you're not, this manages you out instantly. And I will say that in some ways, I feel very fortunate because I have friends, female founders, who have been rejected 238 times. Okay. And the one good thing about a startup where many people will not even let you over the investor threshold is that I didn't have to go through that. Because as an entrepreneur, none of us needs to have any more thoroughly depressing meetings than we absolutely have to have. Uh, because that, that shit <laughs> right. wears on yourself. And so while it was enormously frustrating to not be able to even get into pitch VCs, in some ways it was also very good because it didn't wear me down over time and possibly make me give up. So that's why very straightforwardly the future of porn in a good way. So then what I basically did was tell the story of my TED Talk Because the point was that essentially the moment I gave that talk, the media coverage started. In fact, the site crashed instantly. We we literally built it. And Chris Anderson of TED wanted to make this like the unveiling. And so we literally took it live as I took the stage at TED in 2009. And the traffic that shot to it straight after that, just whoop, we had to kind of rapidly, you know, shore it back up again. It, it was really clunky. And so the point I made right up front was that on no money, I had created something that there was enormous interest in and enormous appetite for. 
So this was the immediate response. We got up to 12,000 unique visitors a day to my tiny site from 180 countries. It was tweeted all around the world. And I got this avalanche of emails that started the moment I gave that talk. And honestly, I have never stopped since. And these emails, as I say, came from thousands of people around the world, and they poured their hearts out. They told me things about their sex lives and their porn-watching habits they'd never told anybody before. And again, bear in mind, this is 11 years ago. This was the first time all these people had ever seen anybody talk about this issue publicly and openly. And so the point I made here was that there was this extraordinary global response I never anticipated on zero proactivity beyond putting this site up and giving a TED talk about it. And so this is where I talk about my background. And by the way, do you remember about me? <laughs> or is this even before you guys' time? So back in the day, 11 years ago, this is what we're all using for our profiles. And so I used my about me page. Oh, um, yes. Just, you know, yeah, just to talk about the fact that my background was, at that point, nearly 30 years working in brand building, marketing, advertising. I mean, this, this is basically where I talked through my business credentials as a startup founder. And the fact that I had started up advertising agencies, being an entrepreneur was not an unfamiliar pursuit. And so this is where I made the point that Make Love Not Porn was all about my philosophy of the future of business, which is doing good and making money simultaneously. And by the way, again, it'll sound very bizarre to say this now, but 11 years ago, that was a relatively novel concept. You know, the, the idea that you could have a for-profit venture that also delivered social benefit was not remotely the norm. And so I made the point that Make Love Up Porn was the opportunity to counter this global issue of porn as default sex education and to disrupt the, the porn industry in doing so with this innovative new world order concept that stood to make as much money as the porn industry historically had. And so this was the two birds with one stone pitch that was absolutely about what today, you know, obviously is a very familiar concept. And that opportunity is makelovenotporn.tv, curated, user-generated, real-world sex content with a high-incentive business model framed in a, and this was really key, more socially acceptable format because this was, as I explained, all I was doing here was I was taking every dynamic in social media and applying them to the one area that no other social network or platform was prepared to go. And so I was taking the dynamics of social media into socializing the one area of universal human experience that nobody else was prepared to even remotely think about. So the, here's the concept. So people submit their own real-world sex videos to make love not porn.tv and reassurance fully legally, you know, consensually. 2257 is the adult industry law that ensures mm. that all content is legal, consensual, everyone's over 18, etc. You keep very strict records made the point that there was no shortage of volunteers to date. People want to be the first to make love, not porn stars. Because obviously, as I said in the last point, we knew that we were going to have to seed the platform pre-launch. And so while I was out there pitching investors, I was also asking everybody I met, 
in my network and complete strangers, will you film yourselves having real world sex for us? And so every time that I had a conversation about make love, not porn, I would end the conversation with that question. And by the way, I would always ask that, regardless of whether I personally thought the person I was talking to would or wouldn't. Okay? Huh. And that is how I found out that 99.9% of the time the answer is yes. I mean, to the extent that even I had to like try and keep my facial features immobile because I want to go, what? You know, <laughs> you know, the desire to do this lies a lot closer to the surface within many more people than you would ever have thought. And given a reason, given our social mission, our social values, people jump at the chance. And that's been true all the way through up to the present day. The second point on this slide is, is very important because I designed Make Love Not Porn around something that nobody else does, but everybody else should, human curation. And that was at the heart of this concept from the get-go. And the reason for that, and I want for your audience to contextualize this in the bigger tech picture, the young white male founders of the giant tech platforms that dominate our lives today are not the primary targets, online and offline, of harassment, abuse, racism, sexual assault, violence, rape, revenge porn. Therefore, they do not, and they did not, proactively design for any of those things. Those of us who are most at risk every single day, women, black people, people of color, LGBTQ, the disabled, we design safe spaces and safe experiences. And so I and my team spent literally years, given how long it took me to get invested, we spent years concepting and designing Make Love Not Porn before we ever built it, because we knew if we were going to invite people to do something they'd never, ever done before, socially share their real world sets, we had to think through every possible ramification of that mm. to create a completely safe and trustworthy space. As a result, not only do we operate unlike anybody else in the adult sphere, we operate unlike anybody else on the internet, period. And at the heart of that is human curation. Our curators watch every single video submitted from beginning to end. You know, we do that to make sure it's real, but we, we see everything going on in every video. Today, our curators review every single post on what we call Make Love Not Porn Social, which is the ability on your profile at Make Love Not Porn to publish anything you want in terms of photography, illustration, art, you know, text. But we review every post first. We review every comment on every video. We can vouch for every single piece of content on our site. And that is why we have a platform that is about nothing but love, hmm. celebrates nothing but love, showcases nothing but love, is all about love. And that was absolutely designed in there from ground zero. Then, you know, like all user-generated content, this encourages self-expression. I mean, describing ourselves as the Facebook of social sex came later. But, you know, the idea was absolutely that we wanted to be what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you to socially, sexually self-express, which, which obviously doesn't. Creative categorization, this was absolutely not going to be porn. Our tagline was pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. You know, we would have real-world terms for tagging, real-world sex categories, invite our users to generate them. As I said, we would seed the platform pre-launch and real-world test it with early real-world content. And in our closed alpha, you know, that was our chance to show people this is what we're for, to inspire them to want to submit the same type of content. 
So this was a really important one. Real world sex is responsible. And I'll just explain the background to this because one of the reasons I concepted Make Love Not Porn was because even back then, this is even truer now, but the number one use case for YouTube is how-to videos. It far outstrips the second biggest use case, which is entertainment. First and foremost, people go to YouTube for videos on how to do anything and everything. That's right. I concepted Make Love Not Porn to be the go-to global hub for how-to videos on anything and everything to do with real-world sex. And one application of that is we therefore provide a unique opportunity for product demonstration, the way some products never get to be demonstrated but absolutely should be. And condoms are a case in point. And so, as I said, in porn, there are no condoms. Or if there are, jump cut, something's on, where'd that come from? And so, again, from the very beginning, we put the call out. We said, we want the hottest, most arousing, real-world sex videos that compete to eroticize condom usage. What's the hottest, most arousing way you can introduce a condom into the action, put it on, take it off, dispose of it. Because if we all had many more creative ideas on how to overcome those awkward condom moments, we'd all be having a lot more safe sex. You'd see a lot less STDs, a lot less unwanted pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And so we actually came up, in fact, with our tag for this, which was hashtag condom hot. Make condom hot, love not porn. Not only do condoms not get in the way of great sex, they can be an integral part of really great hot sex. And by the way, this is why I approached Wreck-It Benkiza and Durex back before we'd even built Make Love Not Porn because I wanted them as a founder brand partner. I've been talking to them for nine years and Mm. we've had loads of dialogues and I'm really hoping they are close to finally partnering because they absolutely should. This is also a demonstration of how we could sell things using real-world sex, another revenue stream as well. And this was a very unique category that, again, I concepted pre-launch. My friends helped me with it. I wanted, another one of my personal philosophies is communication through demonstration. I wanted to make Love Not Porn to be the place where not only did the whole world share their real-world sex videos, to be the place where real-world porn stars would share videos of the sex they have offset in the real world. Because porn stars have real-world sex too. That is completely different from what they perform professionally. And so I asked my straight porn star friends, gay porn star friends, lesbian porn star friends, if they would be willing to launch this category by sharing videos of the sex they have with their real world partners in the real world. And they very kindly agreed. And so what better way to demonstrate pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference than to have porn stars actually showing you the difference as well. And honestly, they've contributed some of the most lovely, moving, beautiful real world sex videos that that we have on, on the site as well. And so very importantly, the business model. And I absolutely designed my own philosophies into this because I feel very strongly that everybody should realize the financial value of what they create. And I feel that especially strongly because my background is theater and advertising, two industries where ideas and creativity are massively undervalued, even by the creators themselves. And so I believe that when you create something that gives other people pleasure, you should see a financial return on it. 
And the more people you give more pleasure to, the greater that financial return should be. And so our business model is revenue share, straight split down the middle, members pay to rent social sex videos. These days, subscribe because we built subscriptions later. And our contributors, our Make Love Not Porn stars, get 50% of that. And another reason for concept of this business model was to democratize access to income. So when we launched Make Love Not Porn in 2012, I wrote a blog post introducing our business model, and I headed it, How Make Love Not Porn Can Help the Global Economy. And I began it by saying, you know all, this, all those little scammers that pop up on the internet all the time going, make $2,000 a week working from home. Well, now you can. And so the whole idea, as I explained in that first blog post, was we wanted one day to hit the kind of critical mass where your Make Love Not Porn video could get a million rentals at $5 per rental, and you would get half that income. Now, we're a very long way off doing that, obviously, because we haven't been funded to scale yet, as yet. But I have to tell you, I am delighted to hear from our Make Love Not Porn stars that our monthly payouts are getting them through the pandemic. Mm. You know, because like everybody else, they've lost jobs, they can't find work. You know, last month, our highest individual payout for that month to make love at Porsche that was $1,400. That's pretty good going to kind of keep you going. And, and, and so we're thrilled that we are democratizing access to income. And then within this business model, we call ourselves the Etsy of sexy. So we are a marketplace for handcrafted real world <laughs> content. You know. And also, and this is something we have not been able to build as yet, but, but the plan was also at some point to have a curated storefront for Make Love Not Porn endorse sex toys, products. I have a ton of brilliant female queer pornographers. They don't get the traffic numbers and revenue they deserve because nobody can find their content. I'd love to help showcase that. And that's still the game plan, by the way, one day. But basically the business model was revenue share. And then the approach was also critically important because at Make Love Not Porn, we call ourselves the social sex revolution. And I explained the revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the social. And so everything about how we were going to execute this was going to be cutting edge, compelling, cool, and normalized. Our site would be completely safe for work, except for streaming, if you're actually streaming videos. The idea was, this is the website where when someone sits down next to you, you never have to slam your laptop shot. <laughs> you know, it's okay, it's make love, not porn. And one of the things that brought this home to me was, you know, the extraordinary response to the original clunky makelovenotporn.com was, I think, because makelovenotporn.com was a manifestation of me. And what I mean by that is it was very simple, straightforward, truthful, honest, down to earth, utterly non-judgmental, and it had a sense of humor. We never get to have conversations about sex within those parameters. The moment we do, the floodgates open. People respond when you socialize and normalize all of this. And so this was our approach, social. Absolutely be able to publish recommendations to Facebook and Twitter. We actually started off, we're going to say we're making love, not porn, on the billing credit card statement. I'm happy to talk about any aspect of sex whatsoever. And it's not TV, it's HBO, it's not porn, it's make love, not porn. I will just mention one thing here, because I think it's interesting. And I, I had no idea of it nine years ago. Even beyond this, 
12 years ago when I had the idea to do the first thing up at porn. I went, okay, I'm going to need a name. I'm going to need a URL I can buy. Something short, punchy, soundbitey, memorable. Make love, not war. Make love, not porn. That's about as much thought as went into it. I went, great, makelovenotporn.com available. You know, bought it, various iterations. Little did I realize that today I own the definitive call to action in this arena. Because every day, hundreds of young people hashtag make love not porn across all social channels and think they're the very first person that ever thought of saying that. Mm-hmm. But the really business beneficial aspect of what we're called is, and I, I say this also because I absolutely talked to investors who went, what about changing the name? Because it's got the word porn in it. So people search for us without having any idea we exist. The search terms that drive traffic that enable us to grow organically over the years are make love, not porn. Make love, not porn. One young man told me that he found us when he Googled porn that is not porn. Hmm. He was so fed up with all the porn out there. He wanted something different. He had no idea how to look for it. He Googled porn that is not porn. When you do that, you find make love, not porn. Our name has worked phenomenally well for us in what looks like branded search but isn't. And so, you know, again, this is about socializing, normalizing, and I use the parallel of Playboy. Again, lots of issues with Hugh Hefner and Playboy, but Playboy was the social sex revolution of the 20th century because Playboy brought sex out into the open, absolutely legitimized it. So I drew the analogy to give investors a sense of the scale of our vision and our ambition. I have to say, looking at this nine years later, I'm actually very happy about the way we've held our vision and our North Star, you know, because I still say, you know, somebody asked me the other day what I wanted my epitaph to be. And I said, you know, I I wanted to be she changed the way the world had sex. Mm. But I speak this way deliberately because something that frustrated me about investor conversations, and actually this still happens to this day in investor conversations, is that investors worry needlessly, that the social mission outweighs the money-making. Absolutely not. And so I wanted to be completely clear, yes, this is a startup with a very strong social mission. Yes, this is a startup that has the power to do a huge amount of good. But make no mistake, I want to build a billion-dollar venture, and I want to make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money. For me, and for you. And so I wanted to end this, leaving investors in no possible doubt of the fact that, you know, despite the social mission, the mission was absolutely to make a huge amount of money with Make Love Not Porn and to turn it into the world's first sex tech unicorn. Wow. That's amazing, Cindy. And you know what's so interesting is that your pitch is so clear that you've stuck and you've been steadfast on the path of what you initially began and the reason you began Make Love Not Porn. And it's really beautiful. So I'd love to ask you a question that a, a Twitter follower asked. Her name is Cindy. And she asked, what was the most surprising question you received during your fundraising and pitching process? I have to caveat again with the fact that this was not a conventional pitching process. So this is not me pitching a ton of VCs. You know, very early on, it became clear institutional investors were not going to be open to this. 
And by the way, I absolutely did try everything. I absolutely tried VCs. I also tried the whole foundation route. I absolutely tried applying to foundations, getting into people foundations, every possible route. But my focus really um, eventually went to angel investors um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I realized that I needed somebody who would not care what other people thought. That was my, my biggest obstacle. And so I talked to a whole range of individuals. And I actually don't think I got any really surprising questions because, to be frank, nothing could be more surprised than what I was putting in front of them <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to some degree, okay? You know, there, there were quite a lot of stunned silences. I mean, thinking about reactions, I absolutely found what holds true to this day. Sex is the one area where you cannot tell from the outside what anybody thinks on the inside. The people you think would get it don't. The people you thought were total prudes do. And so in terms of reactions, for example, various friends, love, make, love, not porn, went, oh my God, Cindy, I know who will fund this, the porn industry. And I went, I'm not sure they will, both because actually there is no longer money in porn. You know, same deals with the music industry. Flood of free content online, destroyed their old world order business model. Haven't invented a new one, still true today. But I couldn't always stop those introductions before they happened. You know, well-meaning friends went, meet this, and I'll be straightforward, old white man in the porn industry. And old white men in the porn industry think they know everything there is to know about the industry and about anything to do with sex-related content. And so I had, you know, a number of old white men in the porn industry going, this will never work. I remember one saying, nobody pays for porn anymore. And in that situation, I get very feisty. I went, they'll pay for what I give them. And I think it's very important. This is why I said earlier, I'm happy I was my own filter. And I didn't have any more of those really depressing conversations I had to have because those grind you down. You know, as a founder, you have to differentiate between the advice and the feedback that is really interesting you will take on board and the advice and feedback that is not helpful at all. Essentially, that just spurred a tremendous desire me to prove them wrong, which I totally did. In terms of individuals, what was interesting was I would talk to individuals who would be enormously interested, and then they would go home and talk to their other half, and everything would change. And again, this is the what other people think dynamic, because when you share the investment you're thinking of making with your spouse or with your friends, and people go, oh, you know, what are you thinking? You, you know, I, I mean, I talked to one, one gentleman who was very gung-ho, then he went home and he had a conversation with his wife, and that just disappeared completely. So there were quite a few of those. And what I think is interesting, to my point of, you have no idea, and you cannot tell from the outside. And by the way, a not being able to tell from the outside makes it really difficult to do what normal conventional founders do, which is do their research and target. Any other founder in any other category can go, right, you know, so-and-so has publicly said they wish to invest in my sector, clean tech, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So-and-so has a publicly available portfolio that indicates very clearly their interests are aligned with, with what I'm doing. Nobody still today is going, bring me sex tech. Nine years ago, that was even more the case. And so I put what I was doing out there all the time, as I do to this day, because I had to rely on synaptic connections being made that would draw investors to me if they read an article, you know, if somebody talked about us. 
anyway, so the way we finally got funded was a total accident, again, <laughs> because I was having dinner with somebody I'd known for a very long time, and I was not pitching him. In fact, I thought he might be a wee bit of a prude as, as it relates to this. And so purely as dinner conversation, I said to him, oh, you know, by the way, I'm doing this. And he got dollar signs in his eyes. He said, I want to fund that. And I was gobsmacked. I had absolutely not thought that he would do that. I mean, very pleasantly gobsmacked. And so he was our first and only angel investor. Sadly, he works in finance. He asked to be anonymous. It wouldn't benefit him for people to know that he backed us, which is exactly the syndrome I want to explode with the social sex revolution, because he has been amazing. Through the years, he's been constantly supportive, put more money into the business as convertible notes. And he's a professional investor. So, you know, travels the world, you know, meeting people with, with a lot of money. And whenever he comes across somebody he thinks might be open, he will very kindly pitch us to them. And that is how he found out for himself what I already knew, which is that we are the final frontier of investment. Hmm. And so at the end of 2017, he and I were having dinner, and he was gobsmacked. He sees our potential. He said to me, Cindy, the guys I meet, and sadly they're all guys, you know, he said, the guys I meet will invest in literally anything else. Guns, alcohol, tobacco, gambling, drugs. You know, the moment you mention sex, whoa! And he was so frustrated, he said, so I'm going to put the money out myself, have $2 million. And that was how I raised my last round of funding from the same investor. And I'm not happy about that. I wanted to bring him other investors. You know, I'm not proud of the fact that in 11 years, I've only been able to find one investor. And by the way, I have absolutely found other investors who've said, when you have that really big round with that big stake of confidence, then we'll look at, I mean, we'll tell you how that syndrome where they're looking for other people to be brave first. But honestly, we could not be more grateful to him because he has been amazing through this whole long journey, absolutely believes in us, you know, wants to see us succeed. And I feel enormously lucky to have had that dinner table conversation nine years ago that resulted to my amazement in him funding us. This is such an incredible story. And unfortunately, we do have to wrap up. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time today, Cindy. But we want to come back, I think, to an interesting discussion that we had even before we started recording today, when you, me, and Lolita and Hung were, were just sort of chatting. You mentioned that one of the big takeaways that you would want to have your listeners, and especially those who are in investor positions, have is that they're leaving so much money on the table. And you sort of illustrated this with this incredible last decade building this company. As an advertiser by training yourself, do you think that this is a framing issue? Lolita and I have had some debate about whether sex tech should actually be framed as healthcare, right? I mean, this is like self-care, mental health, wellness, and there's a whole industry of venture that's pouring capital into that, especially during this pandemic. Just kind of curious to get your thoughts, just as someone who is a storyteller full-time, on whether it's just been a misbranding. So that's a great question, Eric, because I have had occasion to speak to this many times over the years. So first of all, when I set out six years ago to raise just $2 million to scale Make Love Not Porn, I knew it was going to be challenging. I knew that I would have to do what I tell other entrepreneurs to do, which is when you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. 
And so I'd like to say that I got into the Steve Jobs business of reality distortion because if reality told me I couldn't grow make of the porn the way I wanted to, I was going to change reality. But what I mean by that is I literally six years ago began defining, pioneering and championing my own category, sex tech. So I wrote the definition of sex tech. If you Google sex tech, I'm result one on page one. Mm-hmm. And sex tech is any form of technology or tech venture designed to innovate, disrupt, and enhance in any area of human sexuality. And I did that to legitimize my own sector to create a climate of receptivity amongst investors. And so I was a key driver of creating the sex tech sector as we know it today. Over the years, I've talked to fellow female founders who have adopted the term femtech. And femtech covers a number of things that actually are related to sex tech, fertility, period, menstruation, you know, et cetera, that have faced all the same challenges we sex tech founders do. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen a number of founders go euphemistic, water down their concepts because of this fear of what investors will think. And that is why the single most important piece of advice that I give all the time to fellow sex tech founders is take yourself out of the shadows. And what I mean by that is that people operating in this area unconsciously internalize, without even realizing they're doing it, society's disapproval, investors' potential disapproval of what they're doing in a way that then negatively impacts their ability to do the kind of business they want to do. And I'll give you an example from many years ago when a young female founder came to me with a sex tech startup. There there are plenty of these now, but back in the day, she wanted to redesign sex toys, make them cool, sell them online. So she is talking me through her startup and she went, and the thing is, Cindy, people are really embarrassed to be seen buying sex toys. Mm. So we're going to package them like this. And I said to her, okay, hold it right there. You need to go right back to the beginning and reconcept your startup from the ground up. Because you need not to say to me, people are embarrassed to be seen buying sex toys. You need to say to me, we're going to make people not embarrassed to be seen buying sex toys. Mm. When you concept and design a venture around existing societal bias and prejudice, all you do is reinforce it. I refuse to bow to existing bias and prejudice. I'm out to change it. And so I'm about being loud and proud about what you are. And, and I have to tell you, it is tragic. Again, not going to name names because these are friends of mine, but I have seen entrepreneurs with brilliant, very powerful startups pivot, rename themselves, as I said, euphemize what they're all about because of investors' feedback. And that has not actually helped drive their business forward. It has not helped them get more funding. As I said earlier, either you're in or you're out. Be your own filter. Sex tech is enormously powerful for those people who get it. Sex tech is the next trillion dollar category in tech. And you can call it anything you want. And and by the way, if calling it sexual health and well-being does get you more funding or whatever, terrific. But at the end of the day, the way that consumers respond, the way that the people you want to sell to respond is when we normalize this. As I have seen time and time again in the past 11 years, We do the whole of humanity a huge disservice when we do not help them feel better about all of this. You know, I've been saying for years, make love, not porn operates in the single biggest market of them all. Not sex, not porn, the market of human happiness. 
Lolita, I think Cindy just said in her incredibly charming way, go fuck yourself to my my shots. <laughs> that, that was incredible. I th- and I loved it. I loved watching you do that in such a beautiful, harmonious way, Cindy, because I think that's right, right? So many times the industry and the world tells us, the folks that are not the homogenous group that's in power, hey, how about you repackage yourself? Hey, how about you straighten your hair? Hey, how about you name yourself something different? Hey, I can't pronounce your name right. Can I just rename you all together? And what you're saying is, fuck it. This is who I am. This is what we're bringing. This is what it is. Exactly. And in fact, to answer a question that somebody else put on Twitter before this, where, and I get asked this all the time, you know, they ask, what keeps you going through yeah. all of this? Because it is enorm- it's, it's a battle every day. And what keeps me going is the dynamic that I characterize as I'm going to fucking well show you. You tell me it can't be done, I'm going to fucking well show you. You put every obstacle you can think of, think of in the past, I'm going to fucking well show you. I know that sex tech is an extra trillion dollar Catherine tech. I know Make Love Not Porn is a billion dollar venture. I know that we can do something nobody else does. We have the unique ability to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior. I know that we are what the world needs. And I know that we can make an absolute goddamn fucking shit ton of money changing how the world has sex. And nothing anybody says to me is going to change my mind or any, any of that. I'm going to fucking well show you. Incredible. And we're going to be here for it, Cindy, because I more power to you because I, I get it. I absolutely get it. So, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on to our show today. First pitches. We've been speaking with Cindy Gallup, founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. Check out makelovenotporn.tv. Sign up. Convince your partner to submit as well. We'll submit solo, by the way. We have solo Make Love Not Porn stars. As well as that option as well. (laughs) Check it out. Makelovenotporn.tv. Thank you again, Cindy, for joining us today. Thank you for listening to First Pitches. For show notes and more, visit our website, firstpitches.com, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. First Pitches is produced and edited by Hong Pham. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to rate our show and leave us a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Berkland is the recognized leader in outsourced CFO, tax, and accounting services for startups at the emerging and growth stages. As a sponsor of First Pitches, Berkland would like to offer listeners a free finance consultation. Berkland also offers important tools on its website, a financial controls matrix, finance 101 for startups, contingency toolkits, tax and marketing calculators, and other critical resources for scaling a company. Visit berklandassociates.com slash hustle. I'd like to introduce you to a team that every founder should know about. It's GS Futures. GS Futures is a new multi-stage VC fund that launched just this year, investing into teams at early seed all the way through Series D. This team spun off from the GS Group in Korea a legendary enterprise representing assets in retail, consumer, energy, and much more. 
GS Futures is actively seeking and investing into great hustlers. Go to their website right now, gsfutures.vc, and tell them what you're up to. I think you'll be excited to partner with them. Excited to partner with them. Excited to partner with them.